0: I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome! Today, I'm talking to Dr. Kelly Odenweller. She's a professor of psychology and communication at Iowa State University. Like us, she's a post-traumatic parent. Dr. Odenweller studies how people communicate in families and across groups. She studies how changes in communication can change social norms. Check out her research on mom shaming on the internet. It will blow your mind. For a link to my blog post about Dr. Weller's research on mom shaming, see the show notes. Dr. Adenweller, it is a privilege to have you here on the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Welcome. The analogy I think that I have is that, is the concept, not to mention another like mommy war word, but it's almost like a vaccination or an inoculation, right? Because yes, yes. what I'm trying to do is in a very safe dose, give you a little bit <laughs> of failure or a little bit of anxiety, yeah, yeah. right? so that your brain learns to metabolize that experience of anxiety, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I, I, I want you to have, I, I don't want you to not have your panic attack when you come into therapy, right? I want you to have your panic attack or I can't help you learn how to manage panic yeah. attacks,
1: yeah. right?
0: And it's the same thing with like, like that social anxiety example. Mm-hmm. So we might, particularly if you're a helicopter parent of a kid with a psychodiversity, right? A kid with an anxiety sure. disorder, a kid with OCD, yeah. th- th- there really is a temptation to overfunction because you know... Yeah the challenges the child is overcoming. A kid with a neurodiversity, for example, right? There is a certain temptation and it's okay sometimes, especially in the beginning stages, to scaffold that for the kid, but you're not going to do it for the child, right? You're going to, you might say, you might prime a store I, I had a mom who's been working with me with her selective mute child, and we're at the stage where the kid is going into a store and asking for three versions of an item, and then the mom will buy the third version. So, like, go into a Claire's. This kid used to not talk in public at all. Go into a Claire's and say, "Do you have these earrings in green?" And the lady's gonna say, "Sorry, no, I don't carry those. Do You have them in yellow." sorry, no, I don't carry those. Okay, so can I take them in the pink, please? How much do they cost? You know, and once the kids ask three questions, the mom, as a reward to get the kid to do it, the the kid can then buy those earrings, right? Um, So we might at the beginning stage just scaffold it, right? We might have the mom call the Claire's in advance and say, you know, so that we don't get that really brusque, mean sales girl... Who might inadvertently reinforce the anxiety sure. at the beginning. But then there will come a point where we fade out the scaffolding, when the kid's done it enough times that that's not scary. Yeah. And it's the same thing in a school, right? If you're having a play date and you're four, the moms are going to get very involved and make sure that we're sharing and we're talking nicely to each other. And, you know, we're not getting too wild or too rough because we're four, but we're not doing that when we're in fourth grade, right? right. Like we, right. we fade out the scaffolding. It's normal to have the scaffolding, right? It's normal to be extremely responsive to an infant. That's what we're sure. supposed to do. But the yes. infant starts growing up and then there's that level of responsiveness is no longer, right? If my, if my six month old is crying and crying, I'm going to do everything I can to comfort them. Right. If my four year old is crying and crying and they're just really overstimulated and they're mad because I didn't give them a second ice pop or something, right? yeah. Yeah. I might not comfort them. I might say like, I'm so sorry that you're sad, but no means no. Right. And yeah. let them cry it out because what would be terrible for a 6 month old is not terrible for a 4 year old right. certainly not terrible for a 14
1: year old right exactly yeah yeah you're exactly right and and well and you're talking about i think undoing the helicopter parenting is not enabling those behaviors it's like setting limits for yourself and for them and then enforcing a certain consequence so that we're not enabling and and we're not allowing ourselves to to be the enabler, like like allowing that separation. And tantrum as a 14-year-old, well, that suggests that they've probably, everything's always been real rosy and easy and they haven't had limits or consequences or at least not consistent basis. And so if I'm a helicopter parent of a 14-year-old and I notice and I'm mindful I'm conscious of that behavior, I can undo that by in, in that one moment you know and then in a series of moments later i can i can say to my kid like you need to work through this you need to figure this out and and they're 14 and if they don't have those skills yet it is going to be really hard to develop them in right. that 14 but but it can be done through that like crying it out whatever that looks like as a 14 year old allowing them have that time i i say to my kids like that pain or that uncomfortable, and I'm not talking traumatic pain, but like that discomfort, like being upset, that those, sometimes those feelings are good because that means that there's an, a learning opportunity in there somewhere. You can kind of work through like, why do I feel so frustrated? Why am I so angry? Those emotions are really healthy. If you're going to sit, you know, if you're going to take the time to think through, why am I here? And what can I do differently? next time. Right. And like what
0: have I learned? Even if it's yeah. something like where the kid really did get like a, let's say a bad mark on a test or something like that, because they, they were overconfident or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So what have we learned for next time? Like, it sounds like you thought chemistry would be an easy subject to study. It turned out it was harder than you thought. Looks like next time you're going to have to, you know, study a little bit in advance. Now, that's not to say that if the kid's really struggling, I might not hire a tutor but, you know, okay, right. I'll hire sure. the tutor, but it's your job to, like, find the tutor, meet with the tutor, make yep. sure that you're managing Show your time up. around the tutor, you know, showing up, all that kind of stuff. It's not my job, right? My job is to pay for the tutor, because as your mom, you're struggling with this course that you need to graduate, yeah. and as your mom, that's an appropriate thing that I'll do. I will pay for the tutor, but I'm not going to be, like, reminding you, oh, you have tutoring today at 3 o'clock. Oh, don't forget your tutoring. Oh,
1: did you do your work right. for your tutoring? Like, no. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and I I find that the, your questions and your, and your writing and your research about burnout to be really interesting, because I do think that at some point, if we don't undo those types of behaviors that we as, as parents and engaging in the mommy wars, trying to fulfill those motherhood standards, we are going to burn out about, you know, it's, it's going to take such a, a toll on us because no one can be perfect. We cannot be constantly facilitating our kids' success. We can't always be there with the, the energy, the investment that it takes um, certainly wears on our mental health as, as mothers. And, and so, yeah, too much of it. And I think your question about, well, what happens to helicopter parenting is an interesting one to explore because, I mean, there are parents that do it until their, their children are adults. So it is possible. To be sustained, but at what cost? To right, at what cost? Exactly. Yeah, and we already know the cost that it has on the kids. There's already enough research to show the negative effects of it on the kids. But at what cost for the parents? And same thing with the competition among moms. The cost it weighs on our mental health, on our physical health. It weighs on our family life because if we feel we're not confident in ourselves, that comes through in the way that we parent. Maybe that. And, and one argument, one, something that I'm exploring right now is, is, are the pressures that we feel as moms leading us to be helicopter parents? Because we want to be perfect as women. We're trying to be perfect moms. Does that influence us then to be helicopter parents so that our kids are perfect? And, and we're so much invested in our kids' outcomes because it reflects on our mothering skills. And so I'm, I'm really interested in kind of that trajectory of, how the pressures we put on ourselves then influence the pressures we're putting on our kids.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. It sounds like, you know, it's going to be one of those, one of those studies where you're really asking parents to reflect on things that they'd almost rather not think about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And interesting. Motives. Um, right now I have a study where I ask the kids to report on their parents' helicopter parenting. And, and then, the like I said, their romantic relationships. Um, so there'll be a little bit of the kids' perceptions of their parents. But, yes, the next step is then getting parents to reflect on what they are doing. Um, and that's really difficult. One, a lot of parents aren't mindful. They're not aware of what they're doing to even, you know, be able to speak about it or to rate or reflect on the different things they do on a daily basis. And certainly even more difficult is their motives behind it. Right. As a therapist, I'm sure that's a, a difficult question to get people to explain. Well, why are you doing that? Why did you do that? Like thinking, thinking through the choices that were made, but I think that is important for mothering. And parenting is, is to, is to realize, well, why are we doing that? And I think going back to your post-traumatic parents is if I know, if I'm, if I'm mindful about those experiences that I had, and I know I don't want to repeat them, then I can put more effort into doing a better job. And I think that's where we need to go next with mommy wars and helicopter pairing, really knowing the motives behind it, because once we know the root of it, then we can start to to change
0: we can be much more mindful because it's suddenly like, wait a minute, I know for myself, I had this experience I was at a um I was at a at a family event, and one and a young like a young relative of mine, like a young mother, um, made a really elaborate beautiful cake, and I was about to say something like oh, I wish I had time for baking. And then I said, why can't I just compliment her and say, oh, that's such a beautiful cake. You're so talented. You're so, you must've worked so hard on it. That's amazing. Why did I need to go to like almost a competitive statement, like remind the world, like, hey, I'm a doctor. I don't have time for like, you know, baking. You know, I I caught myself, but there's that motivation of, you know, that competitiveness. I think by nature, I am a competitive person. So that's there. And then there's this like mommy wars thing that we can all fall into Unless yeah. we're mindful that wait a minute, why am I even doing this? Why can't I just compliment her and be like, "Wow, that's so beautiful! You made such a great cake," yeah. you know? And that comes yeah. from a place of security. When you're insecure, it's when you need to make yes. a statement like that. That's right.
1: Yep. And and that's exactly it. So I I wouldn't say that my childhood experiences were traumatic, but I certainly lived in an environment that was critical and and hurtful at times, and so. Any insecurities I have from myself could definitely lead me to say a comment just like the one you're saying or to feel, um, hyper concerned about defending myself. It, you know, somebody might say something about, um, like I, just the other day, somebody said they would never buy their kids, um, a cell phone and, and I, I have, my kids have them and I could defend all the reasons why. And all the things that I do to protect them with those devices, in in conversations with other people. But I realize, you know what? I don't need to defend myself. Like, I, you know, right. it's a choice that partner and I talked about, and that we discuss with our children, and 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 it just it seems right for our situation and our you know work and life arrangements and and so that's that but yes insecurities from our childhood then certainly or just personality traits like you're saying if you're just a competitive person might lead us to jump right into those mommy war conversations and and pit us against that other person and i think the only way we're going to be able to end those competitive conversations or those social comparisons is if we resist the urge to defend ourselves that doesn't mean we can't have a conversation, but it, maybe it's more of a conversation like, well, tell me about like why you decided to do that. Or talk to me a little bit about how you, like, how did you make that cake? Or where did you get that idea from? Or right. like, do you like baking? Um, have you made other things? you know, asking questions of the other person and make them feel comfortable to share. You might realize, oh my gosh, we have so much more in common than I realized, they just maybe prioritize things a little bit differently than me, or, or, or maybe we have very similar interests and very similar values when it comes to our families, but so not letting it instantly turn into a us versus them. And, and part of that is not being so offended right off the bat, you know, and, and I have to remind myself of that, like maybe that comment, you know, this person said, I would never buy my kids a phone, wasn't even supposed to be directed at me like maybe right. that had nothing to do with the choice I made and I need to not filter it through my own insecurity, my, my own defensiveness. I just need to take that comment and then have some response that opens up the conversation, not in a negative way, but just in a way that would allow me to get to know that person. And, and it's so true. That it's
0: like, you're, you're a defense attorney, but there's no prosecutor. Like the person might not have <laughs> meant anything about like, yeah, right. And Right away, like yeah. right, like nobody said to me, you know, oh wow, she baked a beautiful cake, Robin. Why did you only like buy the paper goods and the and the, the sodas? No one said that. No one was yeah. like, oh yeah. my gosh, you're such a loser. You couldn't bake a pretty cake. Like no, right. no one said that. No one thought that. No one. Everyone right. understands that. You know, I contributed what I can contribute. Right. Like you know, yeah. everyone was taking jobs. I said, hey, I'll bring the paper goods and the and the drinks. Right. Yeah. No yeah. one was accusing me. Right. But it's my own internalized accuser. And, th- but then yes, that's I'm not it. answering my internalized accuser. I'm about to answer her, which means she's going to feel attacked as opposed yeah. to looking back to the accuser in my brain who says like, you are a lazy mom. You didn't bake a yeah. three layer cake that looks like yeah. whatever, <laughs> you know, like, and, and wait yes. a minute, that internalized accuser isn't real. It's just part of my brain, right? Like, like I said to her, like, you know, thanks, you know, thanks for telling me that, but you know, I have other qualities and I'm fine with that.
1: That's right. Yeah. Being secure in those other strengths that you have and not feeling like you have to be everything. Like you don't have to be a baker. Are you, (laughs) do you like to do that? Explore that, but you don't have to do that. That's not, that's not a necessity. And, and unless somebody does say something directly to you, which does happen, I can remember a, a Thanksgiving dinner that my family extended family was having. And I had a cousin of mine who, when her children were young, she stayed home and um, was exclusively committed to and engaged in raising her kids. Well, when my kids were younger, I was in grad school, and so I was absorbed in graduate school and mommying. Okay. So she said something to me that was was hurtful. She she said that kids that have working moms have more behavioral issues than kids with moms that stay home. Okay. And Um, I became very curious and wanted to do my research on that to to see, wow, is that, is, is that, you know, empirically sound? I didn't say that to her, but I became, in the moment, I became very interested in, um, in that comment. And, and so people do say those things. It's not that we're always just making it up like they're, and they're not always that explicit. Sometimes it's a little more passive aggressive than that. Right. and, in, and when somebody does really attack us or, or when somebody really does say something to us that we perceive to be attacking, because again, they may not have intended it. They may not have realized, but if we perceive it, then the onus is on us to respond in a way that, that doesn't fuel the fire. Like, and that's right. really, hard, you know, when you feel like you've been criticized, um, you know, we already have all these, like you said, those internal monsters talking to us, and then you have this external comment. That's right. just. But the onus is on us to say, I don't agree. Here's what I know. Here's, um, you know, you can use it as an as a way to educate. And and in, after I did some more research on it, my subsequent comments were that is actually not supported. I mean, that it's about quality of interaction not quantity of interaction. And, and so I use that in a, a follow-up conversation um, just to kind of explain like, well, you know, I don't necessarily agree. I think we all kind of have our own, um, we're all making our own choices. But um, I, when I do spend time with my kids, maybe at the end of the day or on a weekend, I choose to make that time um, meaningful with them. And, and, and to me, that's what really matters. And again, so you can certainly educate, but it's not taking that defensive defensive tone to fuel that competition
0: because that person's opinion isn't what's going to influence the outcome anyway right it's just her opinion you know here and there people sometimes become evangelists for certain like you know things like you know nutrition or organic cooking or you know whatever and maybe it really like changed their lives right and it really helps with something So then they sometimes feel the need to share that with the world and that can sometimes come across to another mom as being attacked, right? Like as mom shaming, right? But it comes from a place of like, this changed my life. You have to do this. you know, like someone starts a new diet. You have to try it. Oh my gosh, I feel so much better, right? Like there's a, there's like, there's this evangelical feeling about when you discover something new. That sometimes to another mom can start that. That's where sometimes a war comes from because yeah. like, I've discovered this. I want to share it with the world. But yeah. then, and then when another person is like, eh, I don't know, not for me. It feels like a threat, like, 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 no, but you just have to try it. Right. But we have to be like, it's okay. She's an evangelist right now. She like, you know, she, <laughs> she feels like this changed her life. It's so important to her. But it's her opinion. Like, ultimately, it's her opinion. And here and there, sometimes someone does give us feedback, and the feedback is helpful. And when we're non-defensive, we can hear it and say, oh, you know what? Maybe I actually should try that, you know? Sometimes yeah. someone will say something, even about one of our kids. Um, they'll notice something, and they'll say something, and sometimes it's helpful. You know, like, you know, you, know, my, you know, when my son had that problem, I found a really great speech therapist who helped him with it, or whatever, right? And yeah. it might feel in the moment like a little attacking, but, oh, it's just feedback okay,
1: you know, and maybe that's yeah. actually good information that I can, you know, utilize. Right. Well, and, and I think a little bit of it is if it's a in-group member, so it's somebody that's just like me giving me that feedback, I usually take it a little bit better. But when it's somebody who is like in the other group, so my cousin was a stay-at-home mom and I was a, considered myself to be a working mom, her feedback to me was instantly perceived to be negative, critical, offensive. One of my working mom friends had said, hey, you know what? I think stay-at-home moms kids are just, they're a little bit better behaved. I probably would have filtered that a little bit more positively because she's like me. She's giving me this feedback about working moms, but she's also a working mom. So I would have like been, that would have been a little bit more favorable to me than somebody in the other group. And I, and I think that if we can find a way not to put ourselves in those in groups and out groups, then we can take the feedback that we're getting a little bit more positively. Like we can perceive it to be helpful. Like she's saying that not because she thinks who like I am as a working mom is bad, but maybe because she's actually just trying to um, start a helpful conversation or um, or maybe even learn about me and my, you know, the choices that I've made. So not like just, and, and I will admit in that conversation, as soon as she started saying that it was, you're a working mom, you know, nothing about my life I, or you're a stay at home mom. You don't know anything about the choices I've made and I, you couldn't possibly understand me because our lives are so different. There's, there's no way that we're going to see eye to eye on this. Is in that moment that's how I filtered that. You know, it's a right. Um, but that just makes us more anxious, more sensitive, more critical of ourselves and and others, and that is what's fueling these negative interactions. So, I mean, it, it's difficult not to do it, but that. Kind but that's of- interesting because
0: you study communication a lot, right? And. Um, I wonder also if it's something we can teach ourselves to do, like to, because like you're opening my eyes to something like asking ourselves, am I having an intergroup or an intragroup communication right now? I think it's a useful thing to think about with something like humor, right? Like, am I, you know, if I make a joke and it's a joke about my own group that I am a member of, then that might not be perceived as offensive. But if I make like, for example, I'm a mother-in-law. So if I make a mother-in-law joke, like that's not nearly as offensive now, can my son-in-law make a mother-in-law joke? A little different, right? You know it's, it's, it's that feeling, right? like yeah, wait a yeah. minute, you know you're not a member of this group so that's you, right If you joke about it, it does come across as an attack, that's whereas right. when you are a member of the group, like if, if, if I'm in a working mom support group, like I don't know, mom's in academia, you know Facebook group, right? and you're yeah, like yeah. talking and I'll venture an opinion about something that might not be perceived as much as a thread, it will be perceived more as like useful, you know, kind of a thought provoking comment versus if I'm on a, I'm on a chat with like moms of different groups, then I can see where that would right away be perceived as like, oh, you're putting down our group.
1: That's right. Yeah. We constantly, that we immediately feel like we got to defend the working moms or we got to defend the mother-in-laws or we have to defend our group. And that, that just comes from this, like, we want our group whether it's, um, you know, a small subgroup of mother-in-laws or whether it's a really large group of women or, um, Mm -hmm. uh, a racial group, we want to feel like our group is, is powerful, like in terms of social power and society, we want to feel like we are doing it right. We, um, have, we're worthy of respect that, you know, we want to preserve our dignity. And so, if we think someone from the out group is trying to attack us, like that throws us right into fight mode because we want to make right. sure that our group sustains any power that it currently has, or we want to gain more power, whatever might be the case. And so that fuels a lot of what's going on with moms because we like this, the research that I've done on these stereotypes, we put moms in a bunch of different groups and, and by doing that, we create conflicts between ourselves and all these moms that we think are different from us. And, and, and as women, we can't be doing that. I mean, we already have so much criticism coming from men and, and people and even other women who think negative things about women. Um, so if we're further dividing ourselves, then how can we expect men or, or people outside of our group to treat, take us seriously? Like, because we're not treating right. each other respectfully. Um, so we, we got to stop that she's a stay at home i'm a working um, she lets her kids on devices I don't kind of thing like that right. we cannot continue to go down those paths of finding differences um, differences are meaningful but not focus on them so much that it creates a division among the larger group of moms because we're all we're all going through similar challenges as as mothers as women um, as just you know in in a member of a family, we're going through similar challenges and similar successes. And if we can start there thinking, oh, they're trying to help. That comment was meant to help because maybe they've gone through something similar. If we can be in that space and not in, she's attacking me because we're in different groups, um, then we're going to get, we're going to feel much better about ourselves. And we're also going to feel much better about that other woman and, and that's going to then minimize some of this nastiness that we're seeing.
0: And then we can sort of benefit from the wisdom that you can get when you're part yeah. of a social network, right? That's because right. I know yeah. I've learned so many of my, I don't know, time management hacks or like good ideas for handling things or organizing things or whatever. When I have engaged, you know, on certain yeah. social media platforms, like, oh, that's such a brilliant idea. I didn't even know that that it had that feature, or that's a good way yeah. to organize tub toys or whatever. And when people like withdraw, like you were saying before, like people who withdraw from platforms, because like, I can't handle the toxicity and, you know, whatever, yeah. then, then you yeah. lose that on that benefit. It's not like we're raising our kids in, like, you know, a rural village of, like, a hundred years ago or something where, like, we can, like, go to, like, a bench full of grandmas and ask them, like, why is my baby's, like, you know, why yeah. is my baby's diaper green? You know, like, we don't have that anymore. You <laughs> right. need mom communities online because that's do. Where we get that we information. Do.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's excellent. That, yeah, if we're avoiding, not only is that not... I mean, not only does that not help us reduce our anxiety or our fear, but yeah, we're missing out on all this information, this knowledge that, that could actually make us feel better about being a mom. If we, if we allow ourselves to learn new things, um, that could increase our confidence, which we, this is kind of how it started, not feeling confident about who we are as a mom. If we allow ourselves to engage in those productive conversations, that might make us feel better about our parenting. And, yeah, we learn so many important things by being part of those support groups that um, you're going to miss out on if you avoid them altogether um, or if you go in them with this us versus them mentality.
0: Right, because then you end up in an echo chamber where you're just like everybody else in that small little group. But then are you learning something new? Sometimes there's something to learn from somebody who's in a different category that yeah. you're going to cut yourself off for if, you know, you're going to cut yourself off from it if you, yeah. if you don't engage because it might become toxic, right? That I think knowing right. that, that concept of inter and intra-group communication and just yes. being aware like, oh, this is an inter-group communication. That's why the potential for misunderstanding and shaming and all that stuff was super high. Like, let me just remember that, like remind myself of that
1: rule of thumb, right? Yeah, I actually just wrote that in a paper the other day that if we go into those interactions, almost expecting them to be a little uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. we're from different groups, that will actually set us up for more success because it's like, I know that we're different and I know there's might be some negativity. And if I can like tell myself that, almost like prepare myself, then I have an opportunity to communicate in ways that don't ignite that negativity. Don't make it worse than it already is. And, and you're right. Like kind of thinking about like the, the group membership is it's going to probably, it's probably going to be a little uncomfortable at first, but okay. Live in that, live in that discomfort, live in the discomfort, right. Yeah, explore that a little bit, but don't forget how to be a competent communicator. Don't forget that you can't just attack. You can't just add to the negativity. Like you do have to be, um, you have to engage in some pro-social behaviors to yourself. It's not just going to be on all the, other pers- all the other person.
0: You've done so much research on communication. Like what's a takeaway message about being a competent communicator? What do you need to do?
1: So one is being able to be adaptable. I mean, that's a huge aspect of being effective. So knowing what's appropriate in the context and something that's appropriate at home to say might not be appropriate at the workplace to say and might not be appropriate in an online forum with moms to say. So that's one thing. And I mean, that's very broad, but just being able to sort of change your message is a big key. So that okay. gets at that in-group versus out-group A funny joke, a joke you think is funny to your working mom friends might not work at with your stay-at-home mom friends. So being able to sort of filter yourself is gonna make you be perceived as more competent. Another thing is like the support, the encouragement, praising other people. So not being defensive of yourself. It's just like your cake story, giving that person positive feedback and not resorting to this, these internal struggles and feeling like you need to defend yourself because that puts the focus on you and takes the focus off this other person. And by engaging in an, like an encouraging or positive conversation that then leads to some other things that would be competent, like asking questions, being a good listener, engaging in self-disclosure that's, you know, appropriate again, that, that fits the context, the, the audience, that type of thing. So starting with something more positive is going to be perceived as more competent as well, versus complaining or you know defending yourself. When it when it comes to like being in the family, I mean it, like warm communication. So like warmth, affectionate, those, those types of communication behaviors are also very effective when we're talking about building bonds with our family right. members. But that works with friends too. The, this warmth over criticism and hostility, that's that's also competent. And then I mentioned pro-social behavior. So being perceived competent is also about like helping others, being empathetic. So being a good listener. And when they tell you things, being empathetic and not not like, oh that must have really sucked, but saying I could see why you would feel that way right. in the moment, those feelings are valid that, you know, and you tell me more about how you felt or what you did about that. Again, being a good listener, eliciting more questions, you know, asking questions to elicit more information to build that connection with the other person. And, and that translates to these mommy war conversations, because if we're not defending ourselves and we're not worrying about protecting our flawless motherhood image, and we're more worried about getting to know that person like finding out ways to help that person or, or just learn something from this other person, that's going to be way more competent than just trying to compare what I do versus what you do and, and critiquing somebody else's mommying behaviors.
0: That's so interesting because I have something that I've been telling people. I have, I have a subset of moms who are You know who I'm working with, who are like CEO moms, right? Like they're mompreneurs, and they're also so like me. They have competitive, driven personalities, and sometimes Mm -hmm. that worries them when it comes to parenting. And one thing I talk to them a lot about, especially when parenting teenagers, is just remember you're sad, not mad. Like when you're having this kind of argument with your with your child about something it's not that you're mad at her. You're sad that she made that choice. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then so I, I told this to one mom who is a CEO who does tend to, and she was saying that in her own job, like sometimes she gets the feedback from employees that she's a little brusque and a little tough on them. And when mm-hmm. I taught her this concept of sad, not mad, she started applying that to her employees as well. You know, as opposed to like, you know, you didn't do this right. It was, it was more like I was really expecting to get that today. And like just saying <laughs> yeah. it was the same yeah. information. And she
1: said, wow, it changed my life. Like people wow. hear you out so much better when you're sad as, yeah. as a ghost Interesting. Well, and that, that really brings up this, like this tension between being competent and being warm. Because as, you know, powerful working women, we want to be perceived as competent. And oftentimes that leads us to engage in communication behaviors that maybe are a little bit more aggressive or dominating or controlling or, or just a little bit hostile because we really, we want to earn people's respect. And, and we feel like, you know, the only way to do that is if we come out with this very masculine communication style. And, right. and oftentimes that is very productive. However, as women, we also are expected to have the warmth attached to it. And that phrase of like, well, I'm disappointed, or here's what I expected to happen. And you say it just in a warmer tone. It might be the exact same, like you said, same information, same message, but now I've I've turned it to here's how I felt about it, and here's what I hope would happen in the future. As women, it's perceived so much better and and leads to a future interaction not shutting down, not somebody avoiding us, not somebody um, not wanting to work with us, but it leads to these opportunities where we can actually build a relationship with that person because we treated them with kindness and respect. We still demanded excellence perhaps out of them, but we set it in a way that allowed them to feel just a little bit more open with us, a little bit more comfortable with us. And now they are more motivated to work hard because they feel right. like like that you have cultivated a just a a stronger, more uh, meaningful relationship with me
0: right it's also I mean what's going to be more effective in terms of the communication yeah. like if I want that report on my desk by a certain time, so saying to the employee something like you know, I'm not an expert in, in employee boss like you know communication. That's not what I study. That's not what I do. But saying something like, "I expected that on my desk by 11, and I am going to need that report by close of business today. So, what's your plan for making sure that happens?" is mm-hmm. so much more effective than like, "How could you not have done this?" And you know, like, it's still yeah. responsible of you. Which one is going to actually get the report on my desk right. by close of business today? Right? Because that's, right. that's yeah. all I care about. I know I've had that in here and here. I've had that in even professional interactions. Um, mm. Sometimes like I've had people make statements that I felt were very offensive about particular groups I belong to. And I really wanted to, and I had like the logical argument that I could like say like, you know, and I could argue them into submission because I have the logic behind me, right? Yeah, but yeah. can I ever argue someone into submission versus coming in and just saying like, ouch, you know, as a person uh. who's a member of the group, that hurts because you can't tell me it didn't hurt. If I argue with statistics, you can bring your other statistics. You can cherry pick the data. We can, we can argue back and forth. My aggression is going to meet your aggression. Your aggression is going to meet my aggression. And of course, the more aggressive you get when you communicate as a woman, the more shrill you're perceived as, the less logical you're perceived as. There's no point versus saying, ouch, that hurt. You can't Mm -hmm. tell me it didn't hurt, right? (laughs) Like, right. Yep. And I want to be effective, right? Ultimately, I want to change your mind or I want to change this policy. I want to change something. I want to get a certain message across. It's right. not about am I right? It's about will it work?
1: Yeah. Can I influence the outcome? And, and can I achieve the goal in that moment, whatever it is? Is it completing a task? Is it getting somebody to do something for me? I mean, that, that's how we know that we're competent is can we achieve the goals And sometimes the goal is building a relationship. And so that requires different kinds of communication. Sometimes the goal is getting a project done, completing a task, and that does require different messages, different kinds of communication. So yeah, being competent really requires the communicator to be aware of in this context, with this goal that I have, what do I need to say and how do I need to say it to get those goals, uh, to accomplish those goals? And and so it, it looks different. Yeah, like you're saying, depending on, on what you're trying to do and what kind of arguments are being thrown at you. But when I teach in my classes, my undergrads in both professional communication classes and relational communication classes, the behaviors are almost always the same that I'm teaching, you know, warmth, support, openness, affection. I mean, not always appropriate in professional settings, but those behaviors tend to be very similar, but it's how you do it or what specific words you would use might change because the context is different. So it's, it's knowing, and my students often think, oh, this so communication is so easy. Like I cannot, you know, I can't believe we have to have a whole class on this. Like I, I got myself a job. I know how to communicate, but it's like tweaking those skills so that you can be perceived as more competent so that you can accomplish more goals that you have for yourself. And that's really, that's what it's about. It's
0: about being effective, right, in your communication as opposed to necessarily, because some people think being logical means being effective. And sometimes Mm -hmm. being logical is effective. When you're defending your dissertation, you know, being logical is effective, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes being effective means not appealing to logic. Sometimes being effective means appealing to emotion or appealing to the relationship or having a relationship to build on so you can say, well, can you do it for me, right? Like, or ouch, that hurt me. Right. Yeah. And that's a whole different thing. Because again, what's the goal here? Is the goal here to be logically correct? Or is the goal here to effectively communicate and create that change or make that right. point be heard or whatever? And sometimes yep. logic is the way to do that.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And when you're talking about like an interaction with your kid, logic might not get you that far, but being extra warm and, and allowing them to be open with you, that, that's probably going to be more effective in that context. Right. Exactly.
0: Because If I'm going to sit there, I can I can argue with you all day long that, you know, your OCD behavior is illogical and there really are no germs or whatever. Or even with a little yeah. kid who doesn't have OCD, there's so a standard child or parenting a kid having a standard childhood, you know, challenge. I want to go on the monkey bars, but I'm scared to right? whatever yeah. it is, all of those kinds of things. I can logically give you all the statistics about exactly how dangerous it is to ride a bike or to, you know, go across the monkey bars. But like, when you get up there, even if you know that like, you know, 95% of people who go on monkey bars don't fall off, and even if they fall off, they don't sustain serious damage, it's not going to help you like, take that first step from bar one right. to bar two, right. right? That's not what you need from me yeah. now. You need yes. to say, I nope. get how scary it is, but I think yeah. you really want to do it, and I'm standing here yeah. cheering you on. Let's try it, okay? Right? That's what yeah. you need from me. Yeah. You don't need me to give you the statistics, right?
1: and and adults are the same way i mean while you might not have that same tone in your voice saying messages like you can do this like I, like you're you're great at your job people like you you were successful the last time you tried this i'm sure that it will work out just as well for you like we say the like saying those same things to adults often is more effective than using logic or you know a, um an empirical argument to support what you're saying like oftentimes just being warm and encouraging is what adults want to hear too. Exactly.
0: Cause we're all humans, right? Like yeah. adults are just grown up children in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So my last questions that I have for you is about like the personal questions. Um, so we really talked about what made you interested in helicopter parenting, but also I wanted to hear about, I think on post-traumatic parenting, we're all about post-traumatic growth. And we're all about this idea that when A traumatic experience happens and it could be any experience at any point in life. And it's really a setback, how that can be hacked into a growth experience. So I'd like to ask you about a personal time in your life where you experienced a setback and it ended up being an incidence of growth.
1: Um I I I can think of moments in my in my childhood and like I said, I I didn't necessarily have what would be considered a traumatic childhood, but certainly had moments where I felt hurt from critical messages um, that my, my mom would share with me. And, you know, there was a moment that, that sticks in my mind, like when I had asked my mom for help, particularly to, to drive me somewhere because I wasn't able to do it as a, before I had my license and she refused to. And it was for a class that I had to take and she refused to do it. And even though she was capable of it, she had the time to do it, but she just didn't want to. And she told me that I needed to find transportation before I signed myself up for a class that, you know, it was my fault for not securing that detail before I had enrolled in this class. And in that moment, you know, it really resonated with me like, wow, that's a, it was really hurtful to me because I knew she was just, sort of choosing not to help when when she could and when it would have been developmentally appropriate for her to help because i right. could myself and not at the time it's not like i like i was maybe 15 at the time but um later as i was reflecting on you know my childhood experiences i remembered moments like that and how i felt in those moments and um, that's really what inspired me to become a family communication researcher because I wanted to learn to be better in those kinds of moments. What could I say that would be better? Because I'm sure, you know, and, and at the time I didn't even know if I was gonna be a mom, but I knew that I wanted to just be a more competent communicator, whatever that whatever the setting was, I wanted to make other people feel better about themselves versus being critical and make them feel unworthy or like they were making bad choices and and so that's kind of what got me into interested in graduate school and and wanting to research family interactions and i and for me in my in my personal life what helps me grow and what helps me avoid those types of situations and i and you write about this in your in your work is is changing the narrative like doing something different than what i knew as a child and we talked a little bit about this today already it's just there's modeling and then there's compensating and i i wanted to be compensate i wanted to be one of those compensators i wanted to do something the opposite or just something different than how i was communicated to and and so my growth is every day you know reminding myself i'm not perfect I make lots of different mistakes in my romantic relationship, in my relationship with my kids, at work, but one thing that's really important to me is admitting mistakes, so admitting that you know I messed up. I was stressed, I was tired, I maybe said that in a in a nastier way than I should have and, and you know, and going to my kids and saying, "I'm really sorry that I yelled at I'm really sorry that's was probably hurtful to you and i it was not my intention to hurt you and next time i'm here's how i'm going to handle it better and those were that's something that was definitely lacking in my upbringing is like the admitting mistake and 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 taking ownership of of hurting somebody else and and so as i do more research in my work life i take that into my home life and and just try to be mindful every day that you know, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes because we're life, life is busy. You don't always have to sit down and say, here's how I should do it. Sometimes you just react and you go to what, you know, or what, would um, but growth for me means admitting that I'm human and apologizing, trying to get forgiveness from those people that are important to me. And, um, and I think that You know, I think it makes a difference in my kids' lives because I can go, you know, we can have a bad moment and I can go in later and I can say, I felt now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like I handled that really poorly. And that gives gives us an opportunity to have a conversation about it. And for my my son or my daughter to share their feelings, like why that upset them, because I want them to be able to articulate those feelings. And even if it's me that caused it. Isn't always easy to hear, right? I want that conversation to occur because that again was something that was lacking. Never really had an outlet to explain. Here's why I was so hurt, or here, here's what I would love for you to do next time. There was never that opportunity, and so I hope that I'm growing in that way. Now in my own family, I'm I'm sure that you've written about or you've said before. It's just just being conscious of the things that you're doing and, and the effects that they might have on other people. And that's, what's really important as a communication researcher. It's, it's about other people's perceptions. So while I might not have thought that I said something hurtful, if somebody's telling me that they're, they're hurt and I need to that. Even if I didn't.
0: As opposed to me saying that, like, oh, I wasn't hurtful. I'm a good person. Exactly. You were hurt. Are you okay? I need to repair the relationship because that's the important part here it's almost like something i i i recently was telling my was telling one of my kids one of my kids was watching two toddlers play and um, one toddler hit the other toddler and she right away was focusing on the toddler who was the hitter like why did you do that you can't hit i said first focus your attention on the child who was hit right yeah. we can we can reprimand the child who did the hitting yeah, later right yeah. like that's a different conversation where are you putting your attention First, let's comfort the hurt child, right? Yep. Like, oh, you got hit. Are you okay? Let's put some ice on it. Oh, that must hurt. I'm so sorry that happened to you, right? First, let's mm-hmm. do that. We always can reprimand the hitter, right? Where yep. are we putting our attention? It's like when, when that situation happens where, you know, someone says, ouch, you hurt me, and the initial reaction is, that isn't even an offensive thing to say. That's not a bad thing yeah. to say. That's fine. That's because yeah. we're trying to defend ourselves as opposed to, oh, that hurt you? I'm sorry. Educate me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What would, what can I do better next time? How can I fix this? And, and I try to model that when my kids are arguing with each other, oftentimes my son, you know, if he does something mean, he feels so bad that he starts crying and, and becomes very absorbed in his guilt over what he did. And I have to say, this is not the time to feel guilty. Or bad about what you did. This is the time to go to your sister and find out how she's feeling and how you can make it right for her. And it's just that flip because if you've done something hurtful, it, the attention should not be on you as the perpetrator. The, the attention should be on what can I do or say now to, you know, make you feel better, to uh, make you feel open to a conversation with me so that we can repair this relationship.
0: Right, because the function of guilt is basically, it's a social indicator, right, to tell us, I have socially transgressed, I have violated yep. my own values, I need to fix it. But once you've fixed it, so it's the I need to fix it part that, that yeah. we have to pay attention yep. to. Now. That's right. So how can I fix it? Let me ask my sister how I can fix it. Once I mm-hmm. fix it, guilt needs to go away. I need to say to guilt, That's listen, right. I fixed it, you can go now because thank you for the information, like any emotion. Thank you for the information.
1: You've told me what I need to know. Now you can go. Yeah. Right. And that's it. Yep. As long as you are going to put in the effort to avoid that similar situation in the future, because you're going to make, you're going to go through those steps to make it right. Then you should just start to focus on what are those things I need to do consistently to make it right. They're Something
0: right. I teach post-traumatic parents a lot is the concept that it's not about the rupture, it's always about the repair, right? Mm-hmm. In any relationship, in a therapeutic relationship, in a parenting relationship, so ruptures will happen inevitably. And I think almost yeah. helicopter parenting is about making sure the rupture never happens. Ruptures yeah, are yeah happen. that's good. And then we can repair them. Like I could make a mistake. My kid could tell me a story and I could like be listening with half an ear and it's a really upsetting story and I didn't quite pay enough attention to it because I was preoccupied with something else. I, I may make a mistake like that, right? Yeah. But can yeah. I go later and say, wow, you were telling me a really painful story and I wasn't paying much attention. I want you to tell me the story again. I want to I give you the attention you deserve now. It's the repair experience that matters. Yeah. We're going to rupture. We're going to mess
1: up. We're going to, we're going to drop a ball. That will happen, but can we fix it? Yep. That's exactly it. And, and, and when I think about how do I heal from those moments in my, my childhood where I didn't have an opportunity to discuss the ruptures so that there was no opportunity to repair, that's, I know now that that is what's very important. I'm not trying to avoid rupture. I mean, I guess I am trying to avoid some ruptures. I don't want anything. Unnecessary ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I really focus on like, I I like that you say that the repair part and the, the conscious effort to do better next time.
0: I think it's so interesting to me that every researcher whose research I'm fascinated by, there's always this personal story, like your personal story about how does communication work in families? Is there a better way to communicate? How, how and why do we not listen to each other or mishear each other or not allow each other to communicate that ultimately sparked such fascinating research? I, I just yeah. think that's the whole concept of resilience and post-traumatic growth and it's not necessarily that someone's traumatized we're like oh my goodness this terrible thing happened sometimes it's just experiences that couldn't be metabolized or that were difficult that then lead us to feel uncomfortable which lead us to transform them in some way and that that's really what you're talking about that transformative Mm -hmm. experience of getting curious and saying I bet there's something here I want to study it I want to get this right because it's like a burning question for you
1: Yeah, that exactly. That is what fueled it. And, and it, it was multiple as when I looked back, when I actually had the mental capacity to analyze those childhood experiences, I mean, I always knew that I felt negative. I felt hurt, but I didn't have the capacity to really think through what, why I felt hurt or, you know, what messages I was receiving that might've contributed to that pain. But once I got into college and I, and I, I had those, despite having a helicopter parent, (laughs) I had those skills to think independently. And so it's not like all hope is lost is what I'm saying. Like you can, of course, you can still move past it. But yeah, I had that curiosity. I had that ability to start analyzing those experiences and, and want to learn more about them to help other people right, and
0: that is, I mean, that is our post-traumatic journey when, for everything, even if, even if we're not traumatized, but that journey of, like, this was hard for me, which made me curious, which made me want to yeah. find out more, and then a lot of other people are saying, wow, this is brilliant, like, I want to yeah. learn this, too, right, because whatever our question is, and it doesn't matter what it is, maybe it's about how to yeah. bake a better cake, there's yeah. probably someone else who wants to know that, too, absolutely, right? yeah,
1: yeah, and, and ourselves to be part of those conversations. It's just interesting how things are so woven together, allowing ourselves to be part of a conversation so that we can learn from them and not feel the urge to defend ourselves, not feel the urge to preserve, you know, our face. Like it's okay if people think that we have made a mistake, like I can still feel good about myself. And, and, and that's like the experiences that I had as a child were um, mistakes were not okay. And so I certainly wasn't going to admit when I made one. Right. <laughs> not to my kids, certainly, because then that would just be accepting failure as a parent and that wasn't going to be acceptable. And and so as I look at conversations between moms now, I think there's a little bit of that going on. Like I, I don't want to admit that I've done something wrong and I, actually I'm going to hide behind this inauthentic mirror I can never let somebody see my failure. And in doing that, in that inauthenticity is only fueling these very superficial and often negative conversations because nobody gets to know each other as, as real people. It's right. preservation so that you think I'm a good mom. Or you think I'm a good person.
0: Right. Because like the, the possibility of failure is intolerable.
1: Yeah. That's it. Right.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. This was such, I could talk to you like all day because this was yeah, such thank an you. This was really conversation. Fun. I'm really excited to share your research with people because I feel like this is the kind of information that maybe outside of like university settings, we don't get, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. it's that moms really can make use of and that they can understand and start thinking about like, what am I, what patterns am I falling into? Why is this happening to me? Why am I feeling this way? Right? That's so super helpful, especially for, for me, at least the post-traumatic parent who's going to, who feels this way in her online interactions or who feels this way when yeah. she has intergroup communication. I feel like it's such a useful information and body of knowledge for people to have. So thank you well, so I, much.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me. This was really fun. And um, I'm, you're doing great work yourself and, and I appreciate all the attention that you devote to families and parents and, and children. It's really important.
0: Thanks so much. Really appreciate Talking to you. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that but podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast. Do you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows, your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it, we're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.